Hello, travelers. We meet again on the bridge between our minds. This is Paula Schmidt, and welcome to Evening's Kingdom, where I'm reading installments of my epic fantasy, Evening's Kingdom, books one and two, and also occasionally sprinkling in interviews with other artists and thinkers. If you're new to the show, you may want to scroll back to begin at the very beginning to hear chapter one. Because as of today, we're on chapter 50 million. <laughs> and if you're into it, please do take a moment to click five stars and leave a review. Let me know what you enjoy doing while you listen to the show. I love hearing from you. In today's episode, Uma raises an otherworldly army and alliances begin to shift. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt. We continue. Vesta. Ethelfled and Vesta charged in, Ethelfled screaming with each blow of her battle axe, splitting the Chiriclo invaders in twain from skull to waist. Splattered with blood and dirt, her hair slicked with wet, Ethelfled glanced over to see pregnant Vesta struggling to free her own axe from the shoulder of a dead man. Just as a tall, wild-eyed Chiriclo with blood-soaked locks came roaring over the bodies towards Vesta. He held the knife in his golden hand, blade down, edge out. His body was braided with the swinging entrails of the dead. With his blood-wraithed hair, the tall golden man looked demonic, surging across trampled bone and meat. Even his teeth were caked in blood. Ethelfled lunged for him, but Tolu dodged quickly. Ethelfled's axe just missed his sandal, and in the time it took her to rip it upwards again, Tolu shot past her into Ulali's courtyard. Uma. Lying in the sand outside the castle, Uma sank her awareness into the shape that lay asking her to reach it. As the strength of Uma's mind filled it, it rose. She saw it in the distance, a body still bound within its burial cloak, and now it faced her, sand streaming down the rotted strips of flesh and fabric. The storm-clotted sky shone through the cracks in the dead thing's ancient skull and dangling jaw. Although it was too far away for Uma to see it clearly, she knew it had Wutar fangs, that it was smiling in the merry, open-mouthed leer of the dead. As the others watched, horrified, Uma raised up her hands, turning the bones towards Ulali. The body began to lurch, as if of its own accord. At the castle gates, it leapt up atop a war beast and tore down its horror-struck rider. It clung to the soldier even as they both fell, fangs locked against his neck. The screams rose from both sides as the space cleared around the monstrous walking dead thing. No matter how many times it was attacked, the bones rose again and strode still further, undeterred by blades or lizards, and when the next wheel of war beasts and battle axes came, it scythed straight through. Not until its head was dissevered did its actions cease. The sky was heavy now, ripe rotten, buzzing with carrion flies and blood moths as Uma's awareness surged on beneath the sand. Seeking more of Ulali's dead up from the ancient burial grounds, she found one, and then ten, then dozens, and made them rise in every direction. She sent them hellbent through the gates to fight alongside the Chiriclo. And a cry rolled through the Chiriclo as they realized, The gods are on our side. They redoubled their efforts and gained ground, seizing battle axes up from the dead. They turned the blades back on the yang. Beside Uma, Fern watched her friend in horror. 
Now the small black woman lying next to her in the sand was hardly recognizable as she orchestrated the bones, her face twisted with rage and deadly hate. The watch tent around Uma emptied. Give her room, the Chiriclo murmured, respectfully. Afraid. Take the children. Now, Lalora said again to Fern. And this time, Fern did not protest. Lalora pulled her in close, squeezing her daughter's arm as she spoke urgently into Fern's ear. Get far, far away from here, Fern. Fern gathered up the children and the young animals quickly, leading away two wagons and a skittering train of terrified, wild-eyed lopes, streaming back across the sands as if they might weft themselves back the way they'd come. But the weaving had changed. Vliet. The risen Wutar dead writhed up Ulali's walls, seizing Yang archers. Vliet saw Kestrel trying to fight off one of the monsters. It was too close for her to shoot. She slashed her bow crosswise before her. Kes, look out! Another of the dead Wutar vampires came up from behind her and fell upon Ajax, who was tied to Kes's back. Vliet saw her bright hair disappear. He roared, trying to reach them, only to be dragged down himself. His attacker was small and hairless, with blind eyes like tiny dried fruits. Its stubby gray fangs surged relentlessly at his neck, scrabbling his arms aside as easily as if Vliet were a child. He screamed with his eyes, his soul, his heart, watching his beloved wife and child fall over the wall. Kiss! Gone. Gone forever. He let his arms fall, and Vliet heard his own flesh snap, felt the hot stream of his own blood. The livid sky above him went black and starless and he collapsed. The headless body of a long-dead catling charged Vesta. Once its fur was smooth and white as bone. Now the remnants of its beautiful coat were stained gray with its own shriveled entrails, and it came on like a demon, claws sparking through the dead and dying flesh of the battleground. Vesta lifted her axe and drove it through the center of the catling's already open neck, splitting it, even as the dead thing reared up, clawing open Vesta's pregnant belly with its feet. Oh! It crushed Vesta's body as it bolted over her, taking down two more Yang warriors behind her before Istla fell to his final pieces. Now most of the Yang were backed into the narrow Medina, and together the Chiriklo and risen Wutar dead slaughtered them, bodies piling into doorways. Ethel fled held strong as more and more Yang fled screaming, all training undone as Wutar monsters rose up godless from the sands. All the battles of her life were this battle. She had always been here, dancing with Deathbringer, in the scything rhythm of blood and bone. She was born to dance with the dead, and perhaps she is there dancing still. Uma, kingdom come, kingdom go. Now Uma stood upon the sands, weaving up the risen dead of Ulali. Her scarlet cloak flew behind her as she danced her ancestors up out of the dunes. Fern and the children shied close together as they fled, Wutar vampires rising up out of the sand and lurching past them. One of the teams of lopes panicked in their harnesses, overturning the second wagon, and nine Chiriklo children were lost, their bodies never to be recovered. Still, the Wutar dead marched on. Tulu smiled like a death's head, warring shoulder to shoulder with the risen dead. He felt Uma's energy singing all around him, knew she would protect him from all harm, knew that he fought on the side of gods and monsters, and that perhaps these things were one and the same. Yet heaven and hell alike had decreed the Chiriklo would retake Ulali on this day. Beside Tulu, Ogodai was equally soaked in blood, 
He raised up his blade and shield, screaming with joy as he waded through the sea of broken flesh and bloody sand. The Yang have fallen! Ulali is ours! Uma. Uma sagged into the sand, letting the dead fall where they stood. Sand and blood fell from their bones as her energy withdrew, returning back to her. The surviving Chiriklos swept through the castle's interior, killing any last Yang they found. It was over. It had just begun. She slept where she fell, dressed in red, and at last, no longer in exile. She slept and slept and slept. Uma's masterwork was alive in her now, black as the shadows of the fading day, for the weaving was changed, and she was its weaver. Tolu. Exhausted, Tolu staggered up the stairs of a fine old stone house, leaning into the walls, grateful for their coolness. This would be his. He'd already carved his sign deeply into the heavy wooden door at the street level, just beneath the stone inscription that read, Reaping Sons. The rooms were bright and full of late afternoon light. The walls were thicker than the length of his forearm, insulating him from the noise of the street. If not for the view of Ulali's destroyed harbor floating outside the narrow windows at each ascending floor, the Chiriklo's siege almost might never have happened. Well, if not for the bloody footprints scattered throughout the house. In fact, if not for the pile of bodies in one corner, Tolu could almost pretend the murdered owners of this spacious and incredibly comfortable bed were about to return at any moment, finishing their breakfast of cheese, milk, and stone fruit. Instead, Tolu finished it for them, Splashing his face and arms in a basin of clean water, he turned it dark with blood and then tossed the bloodied water out the bedroom window towards the potted orchard in the courtyard. He staggered to bed and lay down fully clothed, asleep the instant he kicked off his sandals. Lelora. Exhausted, Lelora hauled closed the ancient heavy door. She'd gathered Fern and the surviving children up together in the castle and herded them all into a bedchamber for safety. They would find everyone's parents in the morning. The room seemed cave-like, too fixed. Lelora preferred her wagon, far from the foreign sea slithering hungrily up and down the shore. She shivered, reflecting that this castle was built by Wutar, by creatures like Uma, capable of unnatural arts. Lelora's heart had not stopped hammering in her chest since they first came to this cursed shore. Her face felt sore with the pretending. It wasn't right to be here. It wasn't right that Fern's Owain was dead, his pretty body shattered into the mud. It wasn't right that they had left their trade route, which was always so good to them. Lelora had grown up on the road. She loved the road. She did not want to live tied to some rock on some desolate seashore. At the window, Ogadai stood silent, his broad shoulders tense as stone. Are we underground, mummy? Lelora led her son to the deep, narrow slot between stones that served as a window. No, my love. You see? We're up very high, her child looked down. I'm cold. They lay down to rest, but Fern was trembling and said she could not sleep. Lelora walked her grieving daughter out into the hall. She felt nervous in this dark river of unfamiliar smells. There was a strange dampness on every surface, cool and gritty with salt. She carried a pike in one hand, her eyes darting around at the pervasive metallic smell of the Yang's lizards, which always seemed to cling to soldiers' clothing. Suppose one had survived and lurked now in the dark. But the great house was silent. 
She wrapped an arm around her daughter's thin shoulders. I'm glad you found one another, although it was not so long as you would have liked. Owain was lovely. You should not have had to lose him. He was... Fern's voice broke. I should be dead beside him. I should be dead now. That you are not is the God's gift to me. Lelora made Fern face her. I refuse to lose another child. Do you hear me? Ogodai stood in the doorway, watching them. Fern pushed past her mother and went back into the room to stare at the wall, and Lelora hugged Ogodai. The awful smells of the castle all around them seemed to Lelora like cold, evil flames, whispering the pact Ogodai had long ago made with fate, for the betterment, he believed, of all Chiriclo. Lelora knew that, she'd always known that. But she spoke now, and her voice was quiet, urgent, water seeking its own level in the grim light. Uma rose the dead. What is she, Ogodai? He looked at her. She wanted him to say it, needed him to say it, to know that he thought it too. But her husband was silent. She's a monster, Ogodai, Lelora said. So she's our monster, then, he said. You don't believe that, he paused. No, I don't. Then you know what you must do. We never should have come here. So many dead, it doesn't feel right. Something isn't right. We can't stop it. Whatever's been set into motion by Uma, by you conscripting her? Perhaps we never could, Ogodai said. Let this go, Lelora. When have my instincts ever been wrong? Lelora's voice rose. Name one time. One time. You cannot. And now that you've returned your people to our homeland, you will just let her kill you and leave us all behind to contend with whatever will come next? Is that what you think? What have you done? Make no mistake. She will kill you. She hates you. And you aren't strong enough to stop her. Ogodai swept Lelora up in his arms. We are not yet buried and dead, my wife. You're tired. This is our ancestral throne I've won for you, for our children, for our people. I beg that you see this. So many have given their lives for this moment, for our moment. You have a plan, then? Tell me our plan. Ogodai touched her cheek. You are my plan. <sighs> then we're done for, he kissed her. Well, you're definitely about to be. A smile crept across Lelora's face before she wanted it to. Here, you'll scandalize the ghosts of every nation, barbarous man. She lifted one of her legs around his waist, and Ogodai gripped her warm thighs beneath her dress. His touch was warm and vivid and real, as nothing else now seemed real. And Lelora shuddered closer to her husband. Let the ghosts watch. He bit the shell of her ear. They might learn a thing or two. Lelora laughed. Oh, might they? I'm waiting. A new dawn. The next morning, the Chiriklo woke in Ulali to carrion flies and birdsong. The air was sweet with salt and cold, drifting past the doors and windows of the sleepers, luring them out into the day. But as flowers lure the bees, sweetness has its own ideas. There is much to be done. The dead needed to be burned, the gates needed to be rebuilt and loved ones found and stock taken. And had any of the stonemasons survived, they needed to mine the quarry for Castle Rock to chisel out the correct fillings to flesh in the toothless gaps in the battered walls and outline them again with hard outer stones. 
to fill it all in with soft, crumblier rocks, while the mortar-makers argued over recipes. A moat must be dug, houses claimed, and all the caravans emptied. Already disagreements were rising over which clan would take which of the towers, who had rights to which dome and which shack. But first, argued the sweetness of dawn, first must come music. And so, as the Chiricla woke, they let themselves be drifted down to the beach. They waited, they bathed, they fished and sang. Instruments materialized and a parade began, right atop the bodies of the dead. In fact, the faces of the dead were the greatest participants of all, for their silence sang out, Live for me, as I no longer can, and because you, soon, too, will be dead. And so, the living paraded through the Medina, into kitchens and stairwells, dancing thanks be to gods and tenacity, and every goodness yet to come. Fern. Fern came down into the kitchen and heard the singing, as if all the horrors of the day before were only a dream. With a wild, sudden animal logic, she felt as if she could only run fast enough she could escape this grasping, drowning place. She could outrun everything she wished were not so. She flung herself outside, towards the castle gates. Outside it was a new day, no longer the day that Owain had died, and the morning was warm. During their occupation, the Yang had made this place their own, and yet Fern could not help but see how the architecture was still utterly Wutar. Alien slopes and blind curves. And she remembered Uma, conjuring up unholy dead. Perhaps Uma had even inadvertently killed Chiriklo, maybe even Owain. As a throng of river people burst past her towards the port, Fern pressed back into a doorway. She wanted to hide from them forever, from their hideous joy dancing while their own dead gathered flies. She turned away, deeper into the Medina, away from the castle's ruined gates. For what if she saw him there, his body smashed into the sand? But then she was lost, and that was worse. There was nothing to do but follow the great outer wall back towards the exit. She stepped through the river of dead, unsettling shrouds of flies and seabirds. Here and there, someone had thrown a sheet across a body, and if Fern could have brought herself to find a Wayne, she would have done as much. Instead, she ran, madly, back out into the dunes. Most of the Chiriclo had driven their wagons inside the castle walls by now, or parked out in front of one of the fishing cottages. The wagons still out in the dunes belonged to the dead, and Owain's was easy to find. Blue and empty. Fern climbed in, pressing his pillow up to her face. Beneath it lay both their slingshots. She curled up on his bed, trying not to breathe. For every breath stole away a little more of Owain's scent from existence, and there would never be any more. His shadow was rolled up and folded away forever. He would never hold her again. And the emptiness roared in. All their golden afternoons, walking hand in hand alongside the rattling carts, Owain, his voice his salty skin and silly laugh, his hands on both their beating hearts. You were all I needed. Uma. Uma walked as if in a trance, returning to the house of the Reaping Sons. Tulu had cut his sign into the wooden lintel of her ancestors. There was a smudge beneath it from the blood on his hands. She touched it gently, her body remembering this exact slant the way the keystone cradled her left foot but not the right, 
for it had long been the habit of those Wutar, long before her, to always enter with the left foot first. Uma couldn't bring herself to do this, to see everything of her old life truly vanished. For a moment she couldn't make sense of being alive at all, standing on the threshold and yet in the shadow of futures to come, future lives which had nothing to do with her and never would. She yearned to be ceaseless as the stones before her, unflinching and graspless, with the stones all was as it should be, because should be was irrelevant. Inside the kitchen she could see the courtyard off to the side, almost as she remembered it, where the glorious old Wutar tilework along the walls long ago was burned and crumbled into dust. The small orchard remained, or newly planted one anyway, that was just as it had been before. And there was the hen house and the great cooking pit where so often she'd stood with her aunts over the smoking coals, fragrant meats and charring vegetables. The stump of her journey tree was long gone. She stood where it had been, wondering if roots still remained deep in the loamy womb below her. The dead tree came flowering to mind, as if its memory had only waited there for her all this time, to exult up through Uma just as it had the morning she first saw a woman's breast. Uma used to climb the tree and hide in it, eating her breakfast while spying down on the world below. It was a festival morning, and so her porridge had jerky and spices in it, salt in her mouth, the leaves silky against her own smooth skin. Uma watched as a rat dragged a bloody rag down the early morning street. The rat had been filthy with dust and butcher's muck, and as it tried to jam itself through the crack beneath the door across the street, it squidged a big greasy mark on the wall still would not drop the rag. Uma had watched it in fascination, and then a movement at one of the windows had drawn her eye. The Silars were spice merchants, and often hosted Chirclo merchants traveling from Chalice. A visiting woman Uma had never seen before stood in the window, bathing herself. Her breasts were like warm, uptilted shells, almost translucent with the early light. The street was empty, and the woman was smiling, enjoying the morning air on her skin. And Uma quickened all over with pleasure, then shame. She knew it was wrong to stare, yet spying on this woman felt wonderful. She couldn't look away. Not even from the rat, its wet naked paws scratching at the door down below. Finally, it popped through, with one last rest of its tail, and the wet mark it left behind on the wall was forever indelible in Uma's mind with that first golden breast. Now Uma stood in the room where she was born, where her mother Aiko had always liked to sit, humming over thread and needle, the afternoon light dappling the steam of her beloved bitter tea. There was no end and no beginning, Uma saw that now. Only one ceaseless moment. It was only the terrible briefness of their lives which made life seem as though it were not all happening at once, without end. Here was where the bookshelves once stood, and here, the place her aunts had died, by Uma's own hand. She stood in light that was like spilled milk flooding from wall to wall. But there were no windows and no walls in the womb of time. Death was time, dancing behind every face, every smile. And here, in the ghost of her tree in the courtyard, the memory of its trunk still smooth to her hands, its magical green heliscope of leaf and lightness still cool to her skin, a light to her life in exile, the revelry outside seemed far away, as though, if Uma only wanted to badly enough, she could move deeper inside time and find everything just as it had been, 
she would find her aunts and hug them one last time. No, she would warn them. No, she would stay. Boisterous, drunken singing pressed in through the street-facing door, and suddenly the Chiriclo revelers burst in. They picked Uma up and rode her out into the street on their shoulders to jubilant cheers. Uma! 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 Ogodai was with them, dragging his eyes up to meet hers. Uma looked back as the Chiriclo bore her out the door, dancing her to the top of Ulali's walls, shouting down merrily at the sea. The pressure was dropping. In the distance, clouds gathered into a rumbling bruise. The people put her down, and Uma moved towards Ogodai. There was a swell of thunder. Sky's talking, Ogodai said. He couldn't look at her. Yes, she said, the storm is coming. Uma stared at the sea. We always knew it was to be this way. From the beginning. Suddenly Uma turned on him, as she had so long ago that morning in the catacombs, and Ogodai almost smiled. Now that you have Ulali, you no longer need me, she said. Tulu was pressing towards them through the crowd, and she caught his eye. Perhaps you don't even need Tulu, she said. Her friend climbed up beside them. What's she saying, Ogodai? Tulu said. Space cleared around them as the musicians drifted away, commandeered into the removal of the dead. The new silence caught, tangling like dark scarves. He's let you believe your hands were the only ones with blood on them, Tulu. Those kids back at Tintern, who knows how many others, it was never you. It was Ogodai. All along, Ogodai killed them to put the idea in your head that you'd try to kill yourself, that you couldn't trust yourself. Tulu stared at Ogodai. Is that true? It was him, Oma said, to make you afraid of yourself, Tulu. Ogodai's mouth flushed. You're tired, Uma. You need to rest. Look, he raised his voice so that the people below could hear him. Look at what we've wrought together. We are home. Below them, the people gathered, lifting their fists with joy. Together we will make this land, our land, shine again. My people, we have done everything together to bring our people home. The people cheered and Ogodai clambered higher, raising his hands as he spoke. We have no more need of monsters, of pandering to foreign superstitions. We are free. Tulu's hand fell on Uma's arm. Now's your chance, Uma said to him. Ogodai stood tall above them, orchestrating the crowd below with his back towards them. You can push him. End it all. He thinks we won't dare. But Tulu could only stand there. I cannot, he said. If you can't, kill me instead. Uma waited. But again, Tulu did nothing. And finally, she shook him off. He let her. Long after she disappeared through the crowd, Tulu stood watching the hole in the world where she'd walked away. He could not trust himself. He never had. Goodbye, my lady. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please click five stars and leave a review. I would love to hear what the listening experience is like for you. Who are your favorite characters? What are your favorite moments? For more free stories, interviews, and meditations, please visit eveningskingdom.com. Click the subscribe bar at the top, and I'll send you free additional audio stories and guided meditations available only to free email subscribers. 
Right now, while Evening's Kingdom is on submission, which can take a million years slash forever, <laughs> I'm focusing on working on a new book. And so I'm not sending out the weekly journaling prompts and updates like I was for a while. I just don't have enough time. And something had to give. If you're an artist too, you know how there's this period when you're just focused in. It's like being pregnant and all you can really think about is the baby while you're, quite frankly, just sort of pretending to do everything else. So this means the emails that I send out to subscribers right now are just little taps on the shoulder. Hello, my friends. I love you. And there's a new episode up today. Not really much more than that. Short, short, short as well as a bunch of extra free audio goodies. And when I'm in a new phase of edits with a new book, maybe taking a pause, I will start sending out really juicy emails again. Uh, but the short ones are still good, right? <laughs> this is Polishment, and thank you for listening. I love you guys. Please stay tuned. More from me is just down the road. <laughs>